George Raff teaches Joey Brown and Jack Lemon to tango, Marilyn Monroe out-earns the boys, Billy Wilder goes crazy, and Tony Curtis likes tight pants. It's all coming up next as we review 1959's Some Like It Hot. I'm Shannon, and you're listening to the Vanguard of Hollywood podcast. If you haven't yet seen Some Like It Hot, get ready for two of the most comical hours of your life. No exaggeration. This classic comedy has just about everything going for it. A perfectly crafted screenplay, the genius director Billy Wilder, and a star-studded cast, including Marilyn Monroe, one of my personal favorites, Jack Lemmon, Tony Curtis, George Raft, and our star of the month, Joey Brown. Now, Some Like It Hot is considered one of the greatest comedies of all time, and its classic status is indisputable. But as fans of the film know, what happened behind the camera is almost as legendary as the film itself. Let's go ahead, we'll go through the plot, and then I'll cover all the behind the scenes fun, drama, and juiciness. And before I forget, if you're an Amazon Prime member, you can actually watch Some Like It Hot for free. It's included with your membership, so definitely make that part of your plans. All right, let's go ahead and get to the plot. It's February 1929, Prohibition-era Chicago, already a really fun setting. Musicians Joe, Tony Curtis, and Jerry, Jack Lemon, are working at a speakeasy owned by gangster Spatz Columbo, George Raft, when the joint is raided by the police. Joe and Jerry manage to escape, only to walk into something even worse. They witness Spatz Columbo and his crew murder Toothpick Charlie, the police informant responsible for tipping off the cops to Spatz's speakeasy. So now the Chicago mob wants Joe and Jerry dead. And our boys most certainly will be dead if they don't think fast and get out of town. Luckily, a perfect opportunity arises, a job playing with a band in Florida. But there's one complication. The band, Sweet Sue's Society Syncopators, is an all-girls band. And as their agent tells the guys when they hear about this job opportunity, you gotta be under 25, you gotta be blonde, and you gotta be girl. So desperate times call for desperate measures, and Joe and Jerry do what they have to do. Yes, they become Josephine and Daphne, graduates of the Sheboygan Conservatory of Music, and they get on that train to Florida. Now things get complicated really fast, as if they weren't already, when both Joe and Jerry fall for Sugarcane, Marilyn Monroe, the band's flask-toting ukulele player. When they arrive in Florida, Joe gets the upper hand in the conquest of Sugar when he dons yet another disguise, that of Shell Oil heir and millionaire Junior, he wears glasses and talks like Cary Grant, so naturally sugar falls for him on sight. A quick side note here, the Cary Grant accent was Tony Curtis's original contribution to the film. Director Billy Wilder asked Tony Curtis to do some sort of accent for the junior character, and Tony suggested his fabulous Cary Grant impression, and Billy Wilder was ecstatic with the result, and it's what they used in the film. All right, back to the plot. Joe and Sugar pair up, don't worry, Jerry as Daphne acquires her own admirer, 
in Osgood Fielding III, played by Joey Brown, an actual millionaire who falls so hard for Daphne he proposes. All the fun in Florida takes a serious turn when the Friends of the Italian Opera, a front for the American mob families, has a convention at the very hotel that Joe and Jerry are staying at. Once they see Spatz Colombo and his henchmen in the hotel lobby, our boys don't feel so safe in their female disguises anymore. And they panic. Spatz and his guys put two and two together, realize those broads ain't broads, and the chase to kill the two witnesses to their Chicago crime is on. Jerry, as Daphne, uses Osgood to get him and Joe out of Florida by yacht, the one means of escape not currently being patrolled by the mobsters, or the police for that matter. But Joe is having a hard time saying goodbye to Sugar, and he can't resist kissing her on the bandstand in his female disguise just before he and Jerry hightail it down to the dock to meet Osgood. So, now Sugar puts two and two together, and she realizes that Josephine and Junior are one and the same, and she follows the boys down to the dock and joins them in their escape. The film ends with Joe, Sugar, and Jerry, still as Daphne, and Osgood motorboating out to Osgood's yacht, with Jerry slash Daphne attempting to convince Osgood that they shouldn't get married. Jerry makes all kinds of excuses, like a bad smoking habit and an obvious to us, the audience, but not to Osgood, inability to have children. When Osgood continues to insist that these things don't matter, Jerry finally takes off his wig and blurts out, quote, you don't understand, Osgood. I'm a man, end quote. But this doesn't daunt Osgood, and he brushes Jerry's revelation off with one of the most classic comedy lines ever put on film, quote, well, Nobody's perfect, unquote. And that is the end of the film. Director Billy Wilder and I.A.L. Diamond wrote the screenplay for Some Like It Hot. The Wilder and Diamond script was actually inspired by a German film from 1951 in which two musicians wear various disguises for their work. One of those disguises included dressing as women. Wilder and Diamond saw great comedy potential in this particular thread of the story, moved the action to 1929 Chicago, and the premise of Some Like It Hot was born. With such an intriguing script idea, Wilder and Diamond actually continued to write the script as they filmed Some Like It Hot. It was time to go find the perfect cast. Now, after considering a slew of other actors for the roles of Joe slash Josephine and Jerry slash Daphne, including Frank Sinatra, Wilder decided on Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon, but he still needed a really big name star for the film. Enter Marilyn Monroe. Sugar Cane was not a large role, but Marilyn, married to Arthur Miller and in need of cash after a two-year break from films, reached out to Billy Wilder and said she'd absolutely love to work with him again. Their previous film pairing had been in The Seven Year Itch in 1955. Marilyn and the role of Sugar was a bit of dream casting that Wilder hadn't anticipated, so he quickly told her the role was hers. Even though she had less screen time than Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon, as the biggest star in the cast, Marilyn got top billing and the best payment plan. She earned $200,000 plus 10% of the film's gross over $4 million. This all irked Tony Curtis, who complained to Billy Wilder that his name, as per his contract, needed to be in larger print. But the tight pants wearing pretty boy Curtis was in for a surprise when the acid-tongued Billy Wilder replied, quote, the trouble with you, Tony, is that you're only interested in little pants and big billing, end quote. 
Um, that's awesome. I think Billy Wilder has got to be one of the most quotable characters from classic Hollywood. To help Tony and Jack make the transformation to Josephine and Daphne, Billy Wilder brought in the renowned female impersonator Barbette to train the boys in how to walk, move, and pose like a woman. Apparently, Tony was a model pupil, but Jack so angered Barbette by putting his own somewhat clumsy and still masculine spin on things that Barbette packed his bags and went home. Despite Barbette's insistence that he change his ways, Jack Lemon firmly believed he did the right thing with his Daphne. And here's what Jack had to say on all that. Quote, The goof I was playing wouldn't be very proficient at walking in heels. I needed to be barely good enough to look like a clumsy woman. Unquote. I think Jack Lemon had the right idea. What makes the transition of Joe and Jerry to Josephine and Daphne so entertaining and believable is that Tony and Jack each transform into their female counterparts in ways we believe their male characters would have. We'd expect Joe, the polished ladies man, to make his Josephine more sophisticated and feminine than Jerry's Daphne because Jerry is a more conservative-minded, anxiety-riddled character. It just fits. Marilyn Monroe and Billy Wilder. Now here's an interesting relationship. Wilder knew from working with Marilyn on The Seven Year Rich in 1955 that she could be difficult and even frustrating to direct. Yet in Wilder's opinion, the performance Marilyn turned in on screen was always worth the behind the camera difficulties. At least until her shenanigans on Some Like It Hot. Things started off well enough with Wilder even announcing to the press when filming began in August of 1958 that Marilyn, famous for her tardiness, was so professional she arrived on set three hours early. But the bliss didn't last long, and Wilder, looking back on the turning point, said, quote, I knew we were in mid-flight and there was a nut on the plane, end quote. Again, you have to love that acerbic Billy Wilder wit. By September of 1958, Marilyn's hazy pill and alcohol-induced state was seriously affecting filming. Her co-stars, particularly Tony Curtis, were fed up with her unprofessionalism. Marilyn would show up three hours late and then sometimes refuse to leave her dressing room. Once she was on set and ready to film, it was still a game of Russian roulette to see if she'd get a scene shot in one take or 99. Marilyn's line flubbing was so bad, it reportedly took her 47 takes to say three words, it's me, sugar, in the correct order. In another scene, all she had to say was, where's that bourbon? There it is. Take after take, Marilyn couldn't get it right, while her co-stars, Tony and Jack, also in the scene and wearing high heels no less, had to remain consistent with their performances while waiting for Marilyn to get her simple words right. It's debatable if Marilyn ever got it right, because in the film, her back is to the camera while she says this line, causing film fans to speculate that her voice was dubbed in later. It's pretty safe to say that Tony Curtis's annoyance with Marilyn's behavior on the set, at least in part, sparked his infamously cruel comment that kissing her was like kissing Hitler. Yes, he actually did say it. Tony later said that his comment was mostly made out of his annoyance at even being asked such a silly question. Here's what he said in retrospect, quote, What was I supposed to say? It was like skiing down a snow-covered mountain and being launched into the air by a ski jump and then floating down to earth on gossamer wings? Come on, 
Kissing the most desirable woman in the world and then being asked repeatedly what it was like is a no-brainer, and it began to annoy me. Whether the Hitler comparison came out as irony or sarcasm, which is the way I meant it, the press preferred the soundbite and refused to print the whole story." End quote. Interesting to see it all from Tony's perspective. It was a harsh and inexcusable remark to be sure, but if you're like me and have a tendency to take Marilyn's side in just about any situation, it's good to hear Tony's side of this notorious story. Jack Lemmon, as you'd probably expect from the actor who is known to be as normal and nice off-screen as he was geniusly talented on-screen, was much more patient with Marilyn's behavior than Curtis or Wilder, and attributed Marilyn's antics not to any sort of malice, but selfishness. Here's what Jack had to say, quote, I don't think it was temperamental. It was just selfish. It was totally about her. She would stop take after take after take. You'd be doing a long scene and she just kept stopping the take when she didn't like it, not waiting for Billy, end quote. By the end of filming, Wilder didn't want to see Marilyn ever again, let alone work with her. He didn't even invite her to the cast party. But Marilyn's behavior had cost the film an estimated $200,000, so Wilder had his reasons. Shortly after filming ended, Wilder was asked by the press if he'd ever work with Marilyn again after the horror of Some Like It Hot. And here's what he said, quote, I have discussed this with my doctor and my psychiatrist, and they tell me I'm too old and too rich to go through this again. Harsh. After the film premiered, and it was clear Some Like It Hot was a masterpiece, Billy's words and feelings towards Marilyn softened a bit, and he said of her that, quote, she's a very great actress, better Marilyn late than most of the others on time, end quote. I agree. Marilyn's performance in Some Like It Hot verges on genius. Her sugar is funny, vulnerable, innocent yet world-weary, gorgeous, and gives the vibe of having some deep intelligence while not being very bright on the surface. This sounds a lot like Marilyn Monroe's persona, but the Marilyn persona was an act that she perfected. So why was Marilyn Monroe's behavior on Some Like It Hot so bad? Well, for starters, as I mentioned before, she was frustrated that her husband Arthur Miller was not bringing home the bacon. She didn't want to be working at this time, at least not as the family breadwinner. Second, Billy Wilder told her at the start of filming that she needed to lose some weight. Eight pounds was the magic number Wilder decided on. Then, Ori Kelly, the costume designer on the film, brought Wilder's weight loss request home by telling Marilyn that Tony Curtis had a better rear than she did. Now, I don't care who you are, being told you need to lose weight for a movie can't feel good. Poor Marilyn. I think the main reason behind Marilyn's atrocious behavior on the set of Some Like It Hot can really be traced back to the ectopic pregnancy and miscarriage she suffered in August of 1957, almost a year to the day before Some Like It Hot went into production. As any woman, particularly mothers, and even more so women who have dealt with infertility know, a miscarriage can bring major psychological consequences. And for Marilyn, a woman who desperately wanted a baby, a girl specifically, and whose emotional state was already fragile, the miscarriage pushed her over the edge. A relative of Marilyn's recalled that it was after that 1957 miscarriage that Marilyn's pill and alcohol consumption really got out of control. 
and another friend insisted that Marilyn was never the same after the miscarriage. So when Some Like It Hot began filming in August of 1958, Marilyn brought with her to the set her emotional turmoil, her feelings of failure from the miscarriage, and her alcohol and pill problem. Booze and pills may have helped Marilyn cope with her emotional pain, but her addiction to both unfortunately dulled her ability to focus on set or remember her lines. With Marilyn in such a state, there was no way Some Like It Hot could have been anything other than difficult for everyone involved. Marilyn Monroe has my deepest sympathy. Her behavior during the filming of Some Like It Hot was terribly unprofessional, but there's no denying she was going through some pretty intense times in her personal life. And through it all, Marilyn did deliver one stellar performance, which is what she'd been paid to do. Quick side note, if you thought things couldn't get any worse for Marilyn, she suffered yet another miscarriage in December of 1959, shortly after Some Like It Hot ended on November 6th. Now onto a very much lighter note, I absolutely love Joey Brown and George Raft in this film. These two were big stars of the previous era, the 1930s and 1940s, and their respective roles in Sem Like It Hot were largely spoofs of their off-screen personas and the characters they each played in their heyday. Also, these two complete gentlemen would often, without a word of whining, pick up Marilyn Slack on the days she couldn't bring herself to the set. Billy Wilder knew if Marilyn didn't show up, he could always rely on George and Joe to be ready to film one of their scenes. What utter gentlemen and professionals. George Raft, the quintessential, suave, devastatingly handsome gangster of such 1930s classics as Scarface, channels his gangster roots in Some Like It Hot. Though he was 63 by the time of filming, Raft's Spats Columbo is as perfectly tailored and handsomely menacing as his characters from the 1930s and 40s. If you remember from my post on Scarface, which you can find at macronsandmimi.com Scarface, Raft was the first film gangster to toss a coin repeatedly, and this bit of business, though used by Raft to control his nerves on camera, became a classic move for gangsters both on screen and off. In Some Like It Hot, Raft pokes fun at his association with the coin toss when he sees a young hood, played by fellow gangster great Edward G. Robinson's son, flipping a coin at the Friends of the Italian Opera Convention and asks him, where'd you learn that cheap trick? Classic. I love George Raff's willingness to poke fun of his screen image. Also, remember the awesome scene in Some Like It Hot when Osgood and Daphne tango till dawn? Well, guess who was Joe and Jack's tango teacher? Yes, George Raft, who could still do a mean tango even in his early 60s. As for our star of the month, Joey Brown, no other actor could have infused the character of Osgood Fielding III with such likability and goodness. When you really think about it, Osgood is, as Daphne says in the film, a dirty old man. But because there's just so much natural goodness in Joe's face, aided by the fact that we know he was such a fabulous human being off screen, Joe's Osgood never comes off as lecherous, just sweetly obnoxious. Key reasons, no doubt, why Billy Wilder cast Joe in the role. In addition to getting the plum last line in the film, well, nobody's perfect, which Joe delivers flawlessly, Joe has one more very memorable catchphrase than some like it hot. Zowie. Zowie was actually an invention of Joe's. 
The word had been part of his early comedy routines, and in Some Like It Hot, Joe had the chance to use his famous catchphrase to great effect. It's an incredibly memorable element to the Osgood character that Joe so perfectly crafted. Well, believe it or not, I'm restraining myself from talking even more about this film. Thanks for listening. I hope you found Some Like It Hot at least half as special, noteworthy, and fascinating as I clearly do. For more classic Hollywood and delicious star-inspired recipes, visit my website, macaronsandmimi.com. And this podcast is actually my goodbye to our March star of the month, Joey Brown. Be sure to come back next time. I'll be introducing our April star of the month, the lovely Miss Jane Russell.